Well, hello, everybody. I'm McKenna, and I just found out I'm now doing the Bible reading. So, um, of course, as Vinny's just talking about, the Bible is really important. We need our hearts softened to it. So if you can please whip out your Bible to Luke chapter 4. I know it's going to be on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible, that's cool. But look, there's something really personal about opening it on your phone or in your book, face-to-face, with God speaking directly to you. So if you can, uh, please do Luke chapter 4 verses 16 to 21. I'm going to get it out now, and we are going to read what God wants us to read. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are impressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thank you, McKenna. Thank you, Simo. Well, good evening, everyone. If you don't know me, my name's Lockie, and I'd love to also welcome you to church tonight. It's an awesome chance for us to get together and hear from God's Word, and it's my absolute privilege to uh, open God's Word with, with us tonight so that we might hear what He's trying to say to us. Uh, This week we're starting our series, Hot Topics, Putting God in the Hot Seat, Uh, asking questions that might be a little bit difficult, might be a little bit controversial, um, that have current application to the things that are going on in our world at the moment. And we're going to try and look at these different topics from different questions from God's perspective. What does he think about these and how does he want us to act in response? So tonight, our hot topic is God and justice, specifically God and social justice. Our current culture is absolutely inundated with calls to action about social justice issues. But first, what do I mean by social justice? Well, I've got a little definition here for you. Uh, Social justice is the view that every group or individual deserves equal economic political and social rights and opportunities, and the benefits that come with that. And this social justice often has two groups in view, the oppressors and the oppressed. Those who have those benefits and opportunities that we talked about, and those who don't. And the goal of social justice is often, sadly, to lift up the oppressed, sorry, yes, while at the same time bringing down the oppressors. Specific issues that fall under this banner of social justice include things like racism, sexism, ageism, any form of discrimination you can think of, the gender wage gap, care for and protection of the environment, homelessness, poverty, healthcare, wealth distribution, refugee rights, sex trafficking, abortion, indigenous rights, and on and on we could go. Now, I'm sure every one of you 
has recently been confronted, probably even in the last week or so, with topics like these, either Facebook, Twitter, on the news, somewhere, you've heard people discussing these kinds of topics. Maybe you saw the news story about a man setting himself on fire in front of the US Supreme Court to protest and advocate for climate justice. We've even in Adelaide seen people glue themselves to the streets of our city for that very same reason. And we ask ourselves, does God care about environmental justice? We hear that over 1,400 people are being held in various immigration detention facilities in Australia alone, and the average time they spend there is 689 days. That's almost two years of confinement because they fled to Australia looking for a better life. It seems incredibly unjust, don't you think? Does God see this? We ask, does he care? We hear that 73 million babies are aborted around the world each year. Does God care about this injustice? In 2016, 3.8 million adults and 1 million children, get those numbers into your head, 3.8 million adults, 1 million children, were victims of forced sexual exploitation. Where's God? Does he even care? Here in Adelaide, the Hutt Street Centre says 6,500 people are experiencing homelessness. 10% of the world's population lives in extreme poverty. How are we as Christians supposed to react when we hear these statistics? How does God react? And that's our question for tonight. Does God really care about social justice? Does he care about the abused and the oppressed in our world? Or does he only care about spiritual things? How does he want us to act? Does he actually want us to pour our money and our time and our resources into caring for people and fighting for social justice? Or should we just be telling people about the good news that Jesus died so they could go to heaven and all this worldly suffering doesn't really matter in the long run? So tonight, what we're going to see as we look through the story of the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testaments, is that God deeply does care for justice, for the oppressed, for the abused, for the outcast. He does take their suffering seriously, and he has given explicit instructions to his people to reduce and work to remove this injustice. We're also going to see two surprises as we take a look at how Jesus interacts with this idea of social justice in the course of his mission and his ministry. And then finally, we're going to see how this informs our response to social justice, to the injustice we see in the world today. So buckle up, about to jump into it, but first, would you join me with, would you join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals you to us. It shows us your character by describing you, but by also showing us what you have done throughout history. We pray that tonight we would learn more about who you are, about what you're like, that that might confront us, it might challenge us, and it might conform us more and more to the image of your Son. Amen. So as we look at the question of whether God actually cares about social justice issues, the best place to start is to see how he's acted throughout history. And our window today into the history of God's relationship with us as humans 
We see that in the Bible. And throughout the whole Bible, from the beginning to the end, we see examples of God's justice and care for those who are oppressed. There are stacks of verses, stacks of events that we could look into that explicitly and implicitly teach us about God's view on these issues, from saving the Jews from slavery in Egypt to his commands about how to treat the widow, how to treat the fatherless. And they're all super helpful and really good to look into to try and understand this. But tonight, we're going to be diving deep into two specific examples that help us understand God's relationship to social justice. The first of our two examples of this relationship comes from the Old Testament, from Leviticus chapter 25, and it's the institution of something called the Year of Jubilee. So if you've got your Bibles there, open with me to Leviticus 25, quite near the front, um, third book. So in Leviticus 25, we see God gives his people, that is the Israelites, the blueprint or the instruction manual for how they are to construct their society so that they could live in the way that God desired for them to live, live in good relationship with God and good relationship with each other as their neighbours. And as part of this instruction manual that he gave to the Jews, there were rules for promoting social justice to make sure that people and society didn't fall into this cycle of exploitation where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And this leads to all sorts of issues, especially social justice issues. So what is this year of jubilee, I hear you ask? Uh, so read with me from Leviticus 28, start, sorry, Leviticus 25, starting from verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Bit of maths. Then you shall sound a loud trumpet on the tenth day of the month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. You shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So what we see here is every 50 years, there was to be this special year, this year called the year of Jubilee for the whole land of Israel, for all of God's people. And what exactly happens in this year of Jubilee? Well, look down with me at verse 13. It says, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. Every 50 years, in the year of Jubilee, each of the Israelites regains possession of their property. The land that belongs to them the land that's belonged to their family, it's given back to them from whoever they've, they'd sold it to. Maybe sold isn't quite the right word. Uh, it might be best to think of it as like a kind of lease or something. As the next few verses down say, when they sold the land, they sold the rights of using that land until the next year of Jubilee, when it was given back to them. If it's early in the 50-year cycle, they could charge more because they get it for a longer time. If it's later, they charge less. And then during that year of Jubilee, there's a big reset. The slate is wiped clean. There's a re-equalization. Everyone goes back to owning their land. The poor people who had to sell their property so they could eat, they once again have their land. They would once again be on equal footing 
with the rich people who had acquired many properties, many resources. And then during that next cycle, they'd have a chance to improve their lot. The children weren't automatically put in a bad and difficult situation because of the unwise choices of their parents or the bad luck. Can we see what an incredible blessing this is? How it shows just how much God loves and cares for his people. The poor who are down on their luck, the oppressed. The rules that he gave his people were designed to break this cycle of injustice. And that's something we don't see around us today. Many people have observed what a vicious cycle can come into being when something like the year of Jubilee doesn't exist. Think about poverty, for example, one of the biggest social justice issues in our world today. So for some reason, either by unfortunate circumstances, bad decisions, a family is forced into poverty. They struggle to make enough money to eat, let alone to buy a house or a car. And this family, they have a child, and that child, it grows up in poverty. And this child is often disadvantaged in skills, in education. Because when you're struggling to eat, who can afford childcare? Who can afford fancy private schools? How can you even afford to sit down with your kid at night and read them a story when you don't have the money to buy books? And you've got to keep the lights on at night, but think of the electricity bill. This child then grows up with underdeveloped skills, not a great emphasis on education. They probably don't get to go to uni and get a degree. They're stuck working menial, difficult jobs. They struggle to make enough money to eat, let alone look after their parents who are getting older, let alone work out of this poverty cycle. And then, no matter how hard they try, they can't escape. These, this family then has kids who grow up in poverty, and the cycle goes on and on and on. Escape only comes for the very few lucky ones. Now, compare this, with, which is what happens in our society with God's design for his people. This cycle might be able to persist for one, maybe two generations at the most back in ancient Israel, but then this family would suddenly find themselves in this year of Jubilee with resources again. They have a property that they can use. They're at the same level as the rest of society. How much of a blessing would that be? Can you see from this example how God does care about the underprivileged and oppressed? How he does care about justice for people who have it tough? He cares so much that he structured a whole society on this principle so that people wouldn't get caught in this vicious cycle. This problem would be reduced. The rest of chapter 25 of Leviticus is also a great read if you want to go a little bit further into this, want some more examples of God's provision for his people who are easily exploited, and how he sets up this society in a way that reduces the possibility of that exploitation. So if you want a little bit more, have a read of that. Um, have a read of the whole Old Testament even, and see how God sets up this society to care for those people. Our second case study is Jesus. We've seen in the Old Testament that God really does care for his people, care for justice for the oppressed. But is it the same in the New Testament? How does Jesus, who is the 
fullest and most perfect revelation of God interact with social justice? Well, what I find really interesting is that in the book of Luke, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth, after he's become, begun his public teaching and ministry, have to do with these kinds of issues that we've been talking about. It's what McKenna read out to us before. Uh, so I've got it up on the screen again. Have a look in your Bibles. We'll have another read through Luke 4, 16 to 21. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, these are the important words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke emphasizes here what Jesus is saying his mission on earth is, what his ministry is going to be like. Who do we see that he's primarily come for? Well, he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to those who are blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed. What does he see as a primary focus of his ministry? To care for those who are oppressed, to care for those who don't have anyone else to care for them. Isn't that a very similar goal to social justice? And as we look through Jesus' ministry, through the rest of the Gospels, we see that this is exactly the kind of flavor that his ministry has, don't we? Jesus heals the lame, he heals the sick, he heals those who are oppressed by evil spirits. He gives them new opportunities in life that they're no longer bound by the things that once bound them. They're no longer defined by the things that were oppressing them. He comforts a woman who was caught in adultery. He stands up to her oppressors. He values her and he challenges them. He challenges the Pharisees who are using their position of power to exploit those who are supposed to be under their care. They care about themselves and living a comfortable life more than they care about those who they're oppressing, who they're meant to be caring for. Jesus calls his followers to sell their possessions and to give to the poor. He calls the oppressed and the burdened to come to him, to give him their troubles, and to take his light load, his rest upon themselves. But maybe most incredibly, he teaches his followers that the second most important commandment of all is to love their neighbor as themselves. Can you imagine if we lived like that? Can you imagine if the world revolved around this principle? If everyone loved their neighbor as themselves? Do you think there'd be racism? Probably not. Do you think people would walk past homeless people on the street and just look the other way? No. Do you think anyone would abuse or murder, or steal, or scam, 
or oppress anyone else if they loved them as their neighbor, as themselves? No way. And in the early church, we can see how this attitude of Jesus, this command of Jesus, impacted their way of relating to the people who were living difficult lives. In Acts 4, 34 to 35, tells us that there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Later on in Acts, in chapter 6, the church gets together and decides on a plan for resolving the problem of some of their widows who had no one else to look after them, who had been overlooked. This problem isn't ignored. It's not swept under the feet, swept under the rug. Their difficulties, they're seen as a legitimate problem and something's done to resolve them. So we've seen from the examples of the year of Jubilee, from the example of Jesus, that God really does care for those who are oppressed, that justice and social justice even are important to him. But as we read the Bible with this mindset that social justice is important to God and we continue to watch Jesus' unfolding ministry, we come across two surprises and difficulties. Our first surprise is God's attitude towards the oppressors. If anyone was here for the Good Friday service, you would have heard Pastor Vincent talk about Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. We're going to retell the story a little bit and we're going to have a a look and see why this is a surprising way of Jesus to be acting. So the story goes that Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector for the Romans an oppressor if there ever was one. Tax collectors were hated by the public. They would often exploit the other Jews and take more money for themselves than they were authorised to take. Well, this Zacchaeus, he hears that Jesus is coming to town. And so he goes to try and meet him and to talk to him. And Jesus sees Zacchaeus and he says to him, I'm going to come and have dinner at your house tonight. And in verse 7, how does the crowd react? Well, we see that all the other people, all the other people who had been oppressed by this tax collector, they grumbled. They said, this man, this Jesus, who is supposed to care for us, the oppressed, he's gone to have dinner with a tax collector. What's going on? Jesus, who is God, and Jesus, who loves justice, who cares for those who are oppressed, has seemed to ignore those who are oppressed and to go and associate with the man who oppressed them. Does that make sense? No, not at all. Surely, if Jesus, was, if Jesus really loved the oppressed, shouldn't he rebuke Zacchaeus, start a chant and a riot, down with the rich, down with the tax collectors, down with the rich, down with the tax collectors. Surely he should go and rob Zacchaeus' house and redistribute all the wealth to the poor people, the hard-working Jews who were being exploited. But no, that's not what he does. 
And that's super surprising. Does Jesus care for the oppressors too? Surely not. Well, actually, yeah, he does. Jesus isn't a down with the rich and up with the poor kind of guy. No, he invites both the rich and the poor, both the oppressors and the oppressed, into a new kind of life. Something completely countercultural, completely upside down. A life where there are things more important than money, more important than wealth. A life with a new perspective. A life following him. And what do we see the result of this care for the oppressors is? Well, actually, Zacchaeus is quick to grasp this priority of a different life. The care that he now must have for, his, for the poor because of this new mindset in Jesus. And without any prompting, he decides, I'm going to give half of my money to the poor. Keep in mind, half of his money is a lot of money. He was a rich guy. And he says, if I was ever dishonest, if I ever cheated anyone of anything, I'm going to pay them back four times as much as I took from them. What an incredible change has come over this man. And this surprising care of Jesus, not only for the oppressed, but also for the oppressors, leads to an even better outcome than they could have achieved by just crying down with the rich and looting Zacchaeus' house. Justice is achieved without revenge. And personally, I think our society could do with a little bit more of this mindset. So now we come to our second surprise. And this is a surprise that we share with the disciples. They were surprised by this too. Surely God, who cares about justice for the oppressed, and this Messiah Jesus, whom he sent, would free Israel from their biggest oppressors, the Romans. If God cares about the oppressed, would he not free them from their biggest oppressors? So to make a rather long story quite short, Israel had been under the power of foreign nations for quite a long time. First the Greeks for a few hundred years, then there was a little uprising and the Jews got power again, and then the Romans came in and took over. Uh, and these Romans were hated by the Jews. These Jews had to pay taxes, had to live with certain rules and regulations. And the Jewish king Herod, he was pretty much just a puppet of the Roman authorities. Wouldn't that be a pretty sucky way to live? And these Jews, these Jesus' disciples, when they read the Old Testament and the promises that it contained about this Messiah who was coming, the Jews of his time, the disciples, were convinced that this Messiah that's coming, this promised king, he's going to kick the Romans out of power. He's going to kick them out of Israel forever. This Messiah is going to be the king that unites us, the king that rules over us forever. And we're not going to have people oppressing us anymore. We're going to be prosperous. And this idea, it wasn't just a few people who thought it. It was the whole Jewish society had this view of the Messiah. Uh, we see this in Jewish literature of the time. Take, for example, the Psalm of Solomon, chapter 17, verses 23 to 27. It goes like this. Behold, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, 
at the time which you see, O God, that he may reign over Israel, thy servant, and gird him with strength, that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her down to destruction. Wisely, righteously, he shall thrust out sinners from the inheritance. He shall destroy the pride of the sinner as the potter's vessel. With a rod of iron, he shall break in pieces all their substance. He shall destroy the godless nations with the word of his mouth, and at his rebuke, nations shall flee before him. He shall reprove sinners for the thoughts of their heart. Doesn't this sound like a good thing? A king who's coming, who will free us from our oppressors. And this idea, this is the background for Peter's, um, Peter's rebuke of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. We read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, who had this idea of the Messiah in mind, he, took, he takes him aside and he rebukes him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. How can it? He's the conquering king. But Jesus turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus says that he's going to be killed by the oppressors of the day. And Peter, who sees Jesus as this conquering king, who's going to get rid of Israel's oppressors, he can't believe it. It makes no sense. Isn't this the reason why you came, Jesus? And we can ask the same question. Why didn't Jesus make the Jews' life so much easier by just getting rid of the Romans and becoming their king. Surely, with him being God, he had the power to do it. Why wouldn't he? And this answer is incredibly important, so pay attention. God knew something that the Jews of the day didn't. Get this, Rome wasn't their biggest oppressor. Sin was. Rome and the Romans weren't the Jews' biggest oppressor. Sin was. Their most difficult problems weren't being poor because of the tax collectors like Zacchaeus. Their biggest problems weren't that they had to follow the rules of this emperor on the other side of the Mediterranean. No, their biggest problem was sin. And they weren't aware of that, but Jesus was. And that's why he didn't solve all of their other problems, that social justice, even though he did care about them. Don't mishear me. That social justice was and is important. Otherwise, why would he have spent three years of his ministry ministering to those people? teaching his disciples to do the same. They were important, but not the most important. And so his mission was to deal with the biggest oppressor, not Rome, but our sin. And that's what he did. Even if his followers couldn't understand it at the time, even if it went against everything they thought they knew, that was what he was there for. So, we've seen that God does care for the oppressed and the marginalized. 
that through the whole Bible he shows his love and care for those people, his desire for justice. But sometimes how that plays out is a bit different to what we'd expect. What does this mean for us, for you and me today here in Adelaide? In my intro, I asked if God cared about all of these issues. Now, I'm not asking God, I'm asking you. Do you care that many scientists around the world are saying we're dangerously close to ruining our environment irreversibly? Do you care that over 1,400 refugees are being held for almost two years in detention facilities here in Australia? Do you care about the 73 million babies being aborted each year? Do you care about the almost 5 million people who are victims of forced sexual exploitation every year? Do you care about the 6,500 homeless people in Adelaide, the almost 700 million people in extreme poverty in the world? I know for me, often enough, I don't care. And that's not good. But even if we do care, what should our response be? Well, I want to caution you against going too far either way. The first extreme is one that I often fall into. I think God will care for these people. He's got this. I can't make all that much of a difference, so I'm just going to leave it up to him to fix all these problems. Actually, do they even matter? Shouldn't we be just telling them about Jesus? And then our job's done, right? Friends, let me warn you that this is a very dangerous place to be. Our calling as Christians is to be salt and light in our dark world. If we don't care about all the injustice, we are not being salt and light. We're not living up to our calling. Jesus tells us to love our neighbour as ourselves. Brothers and sisters, if we're not standing up for this injustice, we're not loving our neighbour as ourselves. Jesus wants us to love that homeless man you see every day walking to uni. He wants us to love that classmate who's accidentally pregnant and thinking of having an abortion. He wants us to love that baby. He wants us to love our brothers and sisters across the world in extreme poverty. This is our calling as followers of him. And yes, telling people about the gospel is important. It's the most important thing, but not the only important thing. But let me also caution you against going too far the other way. You cannot, I repeat, you cannot solve all of the world's problems, no matter how hard you try. You are not God. You cannot help every person struggling with every injustice in this whole world. It's impossible. So take comfort in that. Rest in that assurance that God cares about these people. God loves them deeply. It's not all up to you. So how do we walk this middle line? Well, we need to model ourselves on Jesus. And we need to care about people's physical oppression 
and the injustice and the justice, sorry, that they need in order to be freed from this oppression. But we also, more importantly, need to focus on people's spiritual oppression and how we can be promoting freedom in that. We need to recognize our own limitations, that we can't care for everyone and everything at once, but we still need to work hard to care in the ways that we can. Now, just quickly, I want to give you a couple of minutes. Turn to the person next to you and ask each other, tell them, where are you on that spectrum? Do you care not enough? Do you care too much? And second question, what's one thing, one area of injustice that you see that you can commit to praying for, that you can commit to stepping out to try and meet? I'll give you a really quick couple of seconds. Minutes. All right, guys, I hope that was helpful. Um, so to finish tonight, as the musos come back up and get ready for our next song, I want to leave you with Jesus' encouraging words in Matthew chapter 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me.